Good morning. Let's stand as we uh, read God's word this morning. This morning we're in uh, John chapter 13, verses 31 through 38. So 31 through the end. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all the people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I am going, you cannot follow me, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. I'm John Moore. I'm one of the pastors here at Remedy, uh, and I am very glad to be back with you guys um, because last week uh, I was sick with COVID, so I'm delighted to not have that happen over my head anymore. Um, I'm going to beg your indulgence, though, because it's quite possible I'm going to be, I'm going to have a little coughing fit at some point. Doesn't mean that I'm about to give you COVID. You're fine. Um, but, uh, this morning, as we, as we dive in uh, to our text from John chapter 13, um, I want to call attention uh, at the start with kind of the, the notion of the importance of a payoff. Um, we have been anticipating a lot in the book of John, right? So in fact, if you remember from a couple of weeks ago, um, as we moved back into the book of John, um, Pastor Chris mentioned the fact that there are, you could divide the book of John into, into two separate uh, categories. That sort of the first half is the, the book of signs. So you have the major signs, John chronicles uh, major signs that Jesus did followed by ex- extended periods of teaching. And then the second half, he moves into what's called the book of glory. Uh, and the reason, the reason I say the importance of payoff is because the book of glory is all about God revealing, the glory is God revealing the plan of what Jesus was ultimately supposed to accomplish. It is the payoff for what Jesus has been teaching and the miracles that he has been doing up to this point. It's a little bit like uh, what happened this weekend, uh, for instance. If you're a college football fan, you know that college football started this week. And up until now, over the last few months, everybody's been talking about their recruits and the transfers that came in. They've been building their team. They've been, you've been team. They've been in practice. The fans are all getting excited. If you're, if you have a college team, you've been getting excited. People were out there, you know, they're out painting faces, painting chests. They're, they're out there going nuts for that first game of the season. And then you have the payoff when you find out, did your team live up to the hype or not? Um, another, another thing you might think about is, is 
for instance, like Apple or Samsung, there's every year when new products are coming out, as they lead up to it, you get a whole lot of hype about, oh, these are the wonderful things that are coming down. And then you have the drop of their new line, the drop of their new product, and you find out, is it worth it? Is the hype worth it? Um, another way might be if you're like me and you're a fan of Star Wars. Every, I don't know, couple of months it seems like, you're hearing about some new thing that Disney's going to be putting out as far as the Star Wars franchise, whether it's a movie, whether it's a, one of their streaming, uh, streaming events, whatever. And you wait and you wait and you wait and you see all the ads and you get teaser trailers and you get actual trailers and you really hope that they don't put all the best stuff in the trailers. And then you get the actual release point, um, the, the actual premiere, and you hope that it lives up to the hype. So here we're getting the first taste of the fact that Jesus will in fact live up to the hype. He's going to follow through. He is going to fully showcase God's glory. And so this morning as we dive into that, I'm going to spend one brief moment praying that the Lord will show us his glory because that is what Jesus said he would be doing. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have testified about yourself through your word and that you inspired John to write another gospel so that we could understand from a, from a different angle about who Jesus is as the Son of God, as God the Son. And we pray, Lord, that we would see in this text this morning not just the promise of glory, but that we would actually behold God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And we would be encouraged and challenged that we would be more in love with you through what Jesus has done and that we would reflect you in the way we love each other. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his honor. Amen. So we have, we are starting the book of glory and it makes sense. It, it, I mean, you can't hardly miss the fact that it's fitting to call it the book of glory just because you look at this passage. And here in the, in the space of just a handful of verses, glory gets repeated over and over and over again, right? Jesus is saying, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Repeatedly, God uses the concept of glory. And if you think about it, if you need a handy-dandy a handy definition of it, glory is really hard to wrap our minds around. But you might say it is the sum of the weight of the excellence of who God is. It is, it is the beauty. It is the majesty. It's the grandeur. It's the perfection of all that he reflected for us to be able to see and experience personally. So frequently, God being spirit, we can't see him, we can't grasp him, and yet, he reveal, as he reveals himself in his glory, we get aspects. We are able to discern, to discern something of who he is, and when we feel that weight, that is his glory. Um, and so Jesus says that God is going to glorify himself. And he, and he actually says that this is, this is at hand. Now, keep in mind that up until now, he's done some pretty amazing things, right? 
turning water to wine, healing the sick, raising the dead, tur turning a small packet of food into enough to feed 5,000 people. There's a host of miracles he's done. And yet, Jesus does not claim that the glory has already come. He says, it's happening now. He makes a distinction. Because the glory that is being promised is ultimately wrapped around, wrapped up in his purpose as the Messiah. It is in his purpose as the Messiah who will suffer and die to, re to redeem fallen man that the glory is ultimately revealed. And as the Son of Man is to be glorified, and that, and that now it's a mutual thing. The Son of Man is going to be glorified, and the Father is going to be glorified in the Son, and the Father is going to glorify the Son in himself, and it's all happening right now. It's all starting right now. Now, this is important because there's a couple of different ways that, that glory is used in the Scripture. One is we know, we know from what God says. God, in some cases, says he glorifies people like us. For instance, in Romans 8, when, when we get the famous Romans 8, 28 passage, for we know that all things work together to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And then it explains in 28, 29, 30, it explains further on how that means that we grow up into the image of Jesus, that we, he transforms us into his likeness. And then it explains that in concrete terms as God through Christ justifies us. And then he justifies, after justifying us, then he glorifies us. The glory is that we turn into the image of Jesus Christ. So God glorifies us by looking more like Jesus. But there's another way that it's used in Scripture where it is talking about God himself, God being glorified himself, and that is something that he does not reflect to other people. In fact, if you turn over to the book of Isaiah in chapter 42, we see that in 42, which is one of the servant songs, it is talking about the ultimate Messiah who is coming, that God says... In 42 and verse 10, right? No, 42, 8, I'm sorry. Uh, 42, 8. He says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. So in context, what that means is glory meaning worship of God as God, God never shares. He will never give that to a man. Glory of God as a reflection of his greatness, he does share with man. So what's the glory that Jesus is claiming for himself? What is the glory that he is promising is happening in the Son? Is he using it two different ways? Is he saying that the Son is going to be glorified in that reflected manner as a human? Or is he claiming kinship with God? Obviously, we believe that he is God, but there is evidence. There is reason behind that. And the key there is what he says at the very beginning. He uses the term son of man, right? Son of man is instrumental because if you go to Daniel chapter 7, one of the major prophecies of the Messiah who will come, Daniel chapter 7, he says, I saw in the night visions and behold, 
with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days. Ancient of days is, is a term for God, is a term for Yahweh. So there is one like a son of man who comes before Yahweh and was presented before him. And to him was given a dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should be inflected as worship. Now, it's interesting because that, that term serve is also inflected as worship. It is not just physical service, but it is, an, it is the act of worship in their service. So to the one who is like a son of man, worship is being given. Now, going back to Isaiah 42... If God will not share worship with idols, if God will not share worship with anyone else, then the one who is coming has to be God himself. And Jesus is claiming that he is on par with the Father, that he is God as much as the Father is God. So we see his glory in the fact that Jesus claims divinity. He is worthy of receiving worship. And that matters to us because if Jesus is God, then what is coming now, what already has been happening and what is now being fully revealed is instrumental because no other religion has anything like it. In Islam, God does not associate with people the way the Bible does and says that, that Yahweh does. God is removed. Allah is removed in Islam. He is separate. He doesn't experience emotions the same way. He certainly doesn't experience the physical world in the same way. He is set apart from that. The same is true in other Eastern religions, in, in Buddhism, in Hinduism. The, in fact, in a lot of those religions, the, the goal is not only just that God is separate from the physical realm, but we, we sort of ascend, we grow into our elevated state by leaving the physical realm, by gaining more of a spiritual realm and leaving, apart, uh, leaving behind this physical body. So this is distinctly different. Instead, Jesus says he reveals his glory as God here with us to do what God had set out to do. So that means God resides with us. God is present with us. He is physically present with us. So when you are going through your current circumstances, when the world around you is frustrating, is painful, is, is amazing, is beautiful, in all of those things, God has been here. God is, is here and, and was here physically to experience those things. So he doesn't just know what you are going through in a God knows all things intellectually. He has all knowledge. He claims all of it. He has experiential knowledge of exactly what you are going through. If you look just back at the passage that in 13 that we've already read, that means God washed feet. And as I tried to explain to my kids, like that doesn't just mean God washed your feet. He put some soap on. He scrubbed you. No, that means God got his hands in mud and most likely horse and cow manure because that's what would have been scattered on their feet from walking on dirt roads that were also used by cart horses and everything else. So, so God washed dirt and poop from the feet of his own disciples. God had a beautiful, intimate meal with his disciples 
And, at the, and kind of at the tail end of that meal with his disciples, one of his closest 12 friends walked out because he had sold him, he had sold his life for 30 pieces of silver for a month's wages for a common person. He went out so that he could hand him over. He experienced that type of betrayal. He is God who is about to, who it is now being revealed. He's going to suffer in the most horrific and brutal way possible. And all for the forgiveness of our sins. He is going to suffer in these incredibly horrific ways because someday when people put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, there are going to be questions sometimes about whether they can really believe all of their sins are paid for, and yet God suffers physically and spiritually to an extent that nobody has any recourse to say there's something that isn't paid because he suffered to an unimaginable degree. He was falsely accused. He was beaten. He was spat on. He had his beard plucked out around so that his head swole as he was experiencing it. He was whipped with a type of whip that was known to shred the flesh across the back, wrap around and do the same on the, on the ribs and on the stomach to the point where if they had gone much further in the number of times he was whipped, people, multiple people in, in Roman history were known to have died just from the beating. And then after that, they put a rough, sawn, wooden cross on his back for him to carry so that he could get all the splinters and all, the, all that grinding into the back. He had the robe that was put on him after he's bloody so that it could clot up and harden up and then it was ripped back off of his back so that he experienced that agony. Because you all know if you've ever had a surface wound, how much fun it is to have a Band-Aid sticking to you get ripped off or other, or other type of cloth. And then they hung him on a cross. They put spikes through his wrists and through his ankles. And he sat there suffering essentially a slow suffocation in his own bodily fluids until finally he gave his... And I'm just giving you the physical side, right? That says nothing of the spiritual, the weight of God's wrath falling on him. He suffered for us so that we will know that he is our Messiah who is with us and knows us and knows what we are going through and can sympathize with what we are going through. Uh, this past week, I had the chance to, our community group was serving with the House of Agape, uh, serving a meal, and um, had the privilege of doing the devotional. We, we used Psalm 73. Um, and one of the things that the psalmist Asaf says at the very beginning is, as he's looking, as he's just looking at the world around him, the brokenness of the world around him. He is so frustrated with the fact that evil people seem to succeed and righteous people seem to, um, to be constantly in trouble that he says his feet had almost slipped. His faith is shaken, is slipping away from him until he has a meeting with God. 
And it's easy to understand. This message, this Jesus divinity in human form and what he is going through directly combats that issue. Can Jesus understand what I'm facing? Yes, he has been there. He knows how to understand what you're, you're doing, what you are going through. But it doesn't stop there. It's not just the fact that he's God in human form. It's the fact that he is, in fact, bringing salvation. He is redeeming a people for himself. That Jesus has come to sacrifice himself, not just because life is hard, and so he's showing us an example of what it means to suffer well, but he's suffering to pay the penalty for our sin. He is dying to make us whole again, to restore us. He is dying to bring about the salvation of a host of people who will call him Lord, who will be God's children. And there is beauty in this. because There's an incredible beauty and glory in this because if you have ever... Have you ever had a, like a favorite mug or a plate? You ever tried putting it back together? It's, one, it's not easy to do. Um, but it never looks as good <laughs> afterwards, does it? You may still love it, but let's face it, it doesn't quite look the same after it's been smashed. Um, or another way to think of it might be that um, when you have some sort of major illness or major surgery, um, my boss just had hip replacement surgery. And I tell you what, it is, it is amazing what he's able to do with the new hip. But, but when you think about the fact that, that his recovery process is remarkable, and yet it's still not as good as the original. God had this incredible, perfect creation that he made. Go through Genesis 1 and 2. God saw everything, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good over and over and over again. And then sin comes into the world, and it's broken, and it's marred, and things go horribly wrong, and we see evil, and we see death. And yet, the redemption that God is accomplishing, the redemption that is he is putting an end to sin and sickness and death, that will ultimately defeat those once and for all, he is taking not just something that is broken, but he is taking something that is broken and that on its own, our sinful world, our sinful hearts, doesn't want to be fixed because Paul says, uh, Paul says that we are hostile in our darkened minds. Prior to coming to faith in Jesus Christ, we are hostile to God. We are enemies of God. So you don't have just some inert thing waiting to be fixed. You have instead an enemy that is saying, no, I don't want anything to do with you. And God comes in and rescues us and redeems us and transforms us. And so he, when he sacrifices and dies, then he is going to restore us, not just to the place that we were within creation, but in some ways it's even better because we're, we're broken, we're made whole again completely, just as good as we ever were, just as good as Adam and Eve ever were, but even better because we're on the other side. And, and what we know, based on what Scripture says, is that we won't have to go through this ever again. It's not going to be like we are broken and we are, we are made whole, we are restored, and now we have to decide not to make the same mistakes that Adam and Eve did. No, that is going to be forevermore. We will be redeemed forevermore. So the work that God does in redemption is actually 
in human terms anyway, more difficult than the work that he did in creation. And the work of creation is magnificent. It is amazing. So there is so much glory revealed in what Jesus is, who Jesus is, and what he has come to do. Now, we're going to bounce back to this a couple of times, but I do want to dive in for a moment to the very end, to the very end of the passage, because the last thing, Jesus first tells about his glory, and then he's going to tell us about what we're supposed to do with that, and then we get a response from Peter, this little area from Peter, and really that, that end response kind of acts as kind of an application point for us, I think. Because after Jesus gets done telling these, these grand ideas that he has, these grand plans that he has, Simon Peter immediately says to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. He's talking about death. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have to He is the, the wonderful glory that is being revealed in him. And then gives, he's, gives instructions on what he wants them to do out of that. And Peter's automatic response is, yeah, yeah, enough about that. This is really the thing that I want to do. Yeah, yeah, I, I get that you, you have this idea, but it's not that good. Like, what? You're saying, I can't follow you. Well, I want to follow you. Okay. Well, Jesus gives instructions, this is how I want you to follow me. And Peter goes, that's not how I want to follow you. I want to follow you to death right now. I will lay down my life for you. So Peter has this majestic picture, has been having this majestic picture of salvation, of redemption that is offered to him and what's coming. And his immediate response is, that's not really the redemption that I wanted. Um, and so for us, I would say, don't, don't, rush so, don't rush past what you know or what you think you know about the gospel to look for a redemption that you want. Don't rush past what God has done in Christ on the cross so that you can look for a God who just wants to fix your current circumstances, who just wants to give you the, the job that you want, who just wants to fix the argument that you had. Don't rush past the God who forgives your sin, who restores you from sin, so that you can find something that is maybe more palatable, that you don't have to have expose your sin. So God first reveals himself to us, and then secondly, he reveals himself through us, as we see through verses 33 through 35. Little children, yet a little while, I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So Jesus says, he is leaving in contrast to the, to the concept of glory, where he says, glory is happening now. It's time. Now he talks about what he wants them to do, and he says, there is, 
There is a now and there's also a not yet. I'm about to leave. So your picture of what you want is about to go away. And you know that this is going to be a problem for them because it's really, really hard. We even know later on. It, it, is, it is difficult in one sense for them to say, Jesus is, is going to rise from the dead. They didn't believe it. They were, they were afraid. They were waiting after his death until the actual resurrection comes. Then suddenly they're excited. They're emboldened. Then, then they're ready. And then Jesus ascends. And now they have to tell people, Jesus is risen from the dead. Where is he? In heaven. No, no, like, where is he? Like, if he rose from the dead, where is he? He's not here anymore. He, he rose from the dead, and then he ascended back into heaven. So you're saying I should believe in a Messiah who rose from the dead, but he's not here anymore. Well, that's convenient. You know, and even the, the chief priests and, and leaders who wanted to reject Jesus, that was their excuse, was that the body was stolen. Like, oh, he's just, it's gone. He's not really alive. It's just that the body was stolen. So they have this challenge, and yet Jesus gives them something. He, he essentially says, I have all of this glory, but I'm going away. And now I want you to, show, to showcase my glory for me. People won't be able to physically see me anymore. So God's people instead will be the reflection of that. God's people will be the reflection of that. And he says specifically, by their love. So he says, he says, I'm giving you a new commandment, right? That's interesting because this command to love is we already have. We have a command to love. In fact, we have two. Your heart, soul, and mind. Uh, to love, so to love God with everything that you are. And then to love your neighbor as yourself. That's repeated over and over and over again. In Matthew, it's in Matthew 22, 35 through 40. In Mark, it's in 12, uh, 28 through 31. In Luke, it's in 10, 25 through 28. It, it's listed in all three synoptic gospels. And those are actually Jesus restating commands that come from the Old Testament. That the command to love God comes from the Shema out of De Deuteronomy 4, where it starts with, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord our God is one. And then it says, you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And then the command to love our neighbor that he calls back to is from Leviticus 19.18. That it, it first commands us not to revenge ourselves on other people, but instead to love your neighbor as yourself. Those were the callbacks that Jesus made when giving these two great commandments. And yet Jesus says, I have a new command to give you. I have a new command to give you, that you love one another. But wait, we're supposed, to love each, we're supposed to love one another as our neighbor. We're supposed to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. So how is this different? Love one another as I have loved you. So there is another additional command on top of. It doesn't replace them. It's, it's added to. To love as he has loved or as, another way to think of it might, as he is about to love, to sacrifice to the point of even laying down our lives for one another, to give ourselves to each other in every measure. And in so doing, that then we become the testimony, just as he laid his life down for us, 
then as we lay our lives down for each other, whether metaphorically or, God forbid, we actually have to do it literally, um, that as we do that, we become the reflection of that glory that he displayed on the cross. What a beautiful promise. And the truth is, we know, we recognize that that is in fact beautiful. It is in fact attractive. It does reflect God's glory. Because if you've experienced it like from other people within this room, I can, for instance, just in a simple way, many of you were incredibly kind to us last week when our, our family had COVID. Several of you cooked meals. Some of you offered um, to do extra, um, extra errands, runs to the store, things like that. That was wonderful, and it mattered. It was hugely helpful, but also it was another testimony to God's goodness, to God's grace, to what he has done. And yes, to a watching world that is so fractured in so many areas, the more we sacrifice for one another, the more they look at it and go, I I don't get what? Something's different. This is weird. Um, we even have, we have testimonies from the early church fathers that talk from either their perspective about the beauty of the early church and how they had people from all walks of life, from all social strata, and yet they served one another, they loved one another, and it didn't matter whether you were a lord or a servant, that together they, treat each, they treated each other with a common dignity and respect that the Roman world did not understand. In fact, there's, there's also a, um, there's a treatise written to, um, to I believe it's Aurelius. Uh, and it was, it was a Roman historian who was talking about um, previous, who was talking about previous persecutions that had happened and saying, we'll do better off if we don't do any of that anymore because the, there is something different about these people. They take care of the poor when we don't always. They take care of the sick. When plagues happen, these people like go and put their lives on the line to help the sick um, more than even our own people do. It's like, don't, don't persecute them. Don't try and drive them out. If anything, these, as they called them, atheists, because they didn't worship the pantheon, they should be the standard of, of care that we hold aloft to our own people to say, look, if these atheists can actually treat people with such dignity, love, and care, then we Romans who recognize the true Roman pantheon of gods, we should be even better than that. They that we showcase is a dramatic testimony to the truth of the gospel, that Jesus has come, that he has died for our sins, that he has redeemed us, and that he is bringing all things, as we said, into his headship. Um, and so this morning, as, as we're turning our, to our close, the application for this in the command to love one another, I would say, is don't rush past the obedience to the obedience that is most comfortable to give and rush past the obedience and the call that God gave us to love one another. Because let's face it, within the church, we're not always attractive. Sometimes we're annoying Sometimes we can be downright mean. Um, sometimes we, we don't look like Jesus. 
I mean, that is just the sad truth of it. And it's very easy for us to say, I want to put all my love and affection on the person of God himself and forget about all of you people because it's a whole lot easier if I don't have to be concerned with you. If I can just focus on God, it's easy to see his beauty by comparison than it is to see yours sometimes. No offense. And the truth is, that goes both ways. It's going to be easier for you to look at Jesus and to look at God the Father and to see their majesty than it is sometimes going to be able to see mine. It's just the way it is. Because I am not perfect. I am a sinner. And yet, Jesus says this is the call for his disciples. Not to rush past that to a type of obedience, to a type of service, to a type of following that you want the way Peter was doing, of going, no, I don't want to follow like that. I don't want to follow by loving everybody. I want to follow by coming and laying down my life for you. No, follow the way we have been commanded. Follow the way we have been commanded. And the result is going to be that God's glory goes out and more and more people will see it and more and more people will be changed by it because they will recognize the truth of who Jesus is and they will bow the knee to him. They will have their sins forgiven by him. Their lives will be miraculously transformed by him. And it goes on and on and on. I heard, I heard a testimony from uh, somebody else years ago that I thought was really funny. That for those of us who don't feel like we have great testimonies, you know, it was because we, we, uh, we learned about and accepted Christ at a fairly young age. Uh, he said, I was saved from a life of drunkenness and debauchery at the age of seven. Because it meant he never went through any of that. He didn't have all of those regrets to live past. For me, it's similar to that. I grew, I grew up in the faith early. So I, I don't remember a time when I didn't recognize, um, when I didn't think that God was real. Um, now, there were plenty of times where I lived like God wasn't real. But I, I never had a time where mentally I didn't recognize that God was real. But a lot of that, it didn't just, that didn't just happen from me. That, of course, came from my parents and, and their parents before them. Because in the case of my dad, it was from a mom who knew, the, who knew the Lord, who truly, truly knew the Lord, and a dad who didn't. And seeing the contrast, in, and he bowed the knee to Jesus and was saved. In my mom's case, it was her, her parents, her mom had grown up in the faith even, for, you know, even further back. In the case of her dad, her dad was a, a terrible man in some ways. He had grown up under an abusive father himself, and he was just miserable and angry and uh, when he was a young man he joined the navy and he said he had two things that he was interested in he wanted to work with the navy he wanted to get drunk and maybe get in a fight that was it and then through the work of the navigators a group called the navigators um, he came to faith in Jesus Christ and his life turned around like a switch so that after he eventually met my grandmother uh, and they married they became uh, missionaries um, and the trajectory of his life radically transformed to where everything was about the gospel. And that is a huge part of why I am here today because God's glory was miraculously revealed through lives 
through generations. And, and really at this point now, you're talking about through centuries. Uh, one of them, in fact, my, my dad's mom, she was born in 1901. I have 130 years uh, almost of history. You know, I'll come up on that soon. It is miraculous to see God's glory revealed. So I pray that the Lord will help us to abound more and more in love for one another and reveal that glory to, to each other and to the world around us. At this point, I want to invite the, the music team to come up. We're going to transition towards our time of, of partaking in the Lord's Supper together. And just want to remind you that um, so we have both wine and juice so you have options. Anyone who is a baptized believer in, in Jesus Christ, we invite you to, to partake. You are part of God's family. You are part of God's children. So we invite you to partake in that. And while, while we're preparing, the musical team will, will offer a song, help us to tune our hearts to that, to what Jesus has done for us. And then you can come up and get the elements um, whenever you are ready. And then we will all take them together. Also, if you want it this time, this is another good time where uh, if you want to give in person, you are certainly welcome to do that. There's a box in the back. Uh, if you'd rather give online, that is okay. But we want to give joyously and generously.